Uh, we've been in the series that this whole year. We've taken a couple um, uh, detours here and there for Father's Day, Mother's Day. But, but today we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 to 38. And I'm calling this, this, this sermon, Goodbye to Ephesus. With that, let's just open our Bibles. And I, this is a lengthy passage, so I brought my reading glasses so I could see this better. But let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you this whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks the repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing whether what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself. If only I may finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of, none of among you who have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of, all, of, of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I am commending you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who, those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that with these hands I ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown to you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the, the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was such weeping on part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they admonished him, uh, they accompanied him to the ship. So we have been in the book of Acts for quite some time. And just to review a lot of what we have been through in the past couple weeks, the, the first missionary Paul, uh, journey the Apostle Paul took, he took a man by the name of Barnabas and another by the name of John Mark. And this was covered in Acts 13 and 14. This was a short mission trip, but it was, it was very successful where there was churches planted all over Asia Minor, and there's many people that came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through this trip. 
It was on the second trip that Paul took a different team. This time he took a man by the name of uh, Timothy and another by the name of Silas. Uh, this was this cover. Uh, um, this, this happened over Acts 15, 16, 17, and 18. And, but notice there's no Barnabas. There's no John Mark. Because it was on the second trip that, that John Mark got cold feet. And he, he went back to, to Jerusalem. And, and so there was when it came time to take this second trip, because on the first trip John Mark left, and there was a sharp disagreement over John Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas split ways. But if we would go to the end of Paul's life... John Mark and he will be reconciled. Paul will say that John Mark is useful to his ministry, but much of what happened on the second mission trip was the men returning to the churches that were planted on the first mission trip and, and building up the believers there. If you remember, it was, it was on the second mission trip where Paul said he wanted to go to Asia, but then he couldn't. It was the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that forbid them. It's almost like the guy said, hey, guys, let's go east. And God said, no, go west. And so they obeyed. And sometimes God does stuff like that. He, he, Christians say, well, he closes a door, then he opens another one. And that's, that does happen. And I think we sometimes say stuff like that because of what happened on the second missionary trip. The mission team experienced a closed door. And I have to think they also experienced some disappointment. Because they, they, they had their hearts so on go, go, heart set on going to Ephesus, but they, they couldn't. And if you remember what happened to really cause that, Paul had a, a vision of a guy from Macedonia that said, Hey, come over here and help us. And I would say, what could be a bigger help to somebody than going and, and telling somebody about Jesus Christ? Well, at this end of the second missionary journey, the team came back through Ephesus before they went to Jerusalem, and then they finished up in Antioch. Antioch is the starting and launching point for all of these mission trips. That's home base. Well, so the mission trip ends in Acts 18, verse 22. Well, it's my opinion, it's just my opinion, that there's a weird chapter break, or a lack thereof, uh, there at Acts 18, 22. Now, remember, Luke is writing this. Okay? And Luke did not put the chapter and verse breaks in our Bible. So those, those numbers that are in our Bibles, those, that's not the inspired Word of God. Somebody else put those in there much, much later so that we'd be able to find and remember Scripture. And that's actually true for every book in our Bible. But it seems to me that Acts, uh, the, excuse me, Acts 18 should end after verse 22 and Acts chapter 19 should pick up at verse 23, but it doesn't. But I want you to read this, Acts 18 Verse 23. It says, After spending some time there, he departed and went to from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Figura, strengthening all the disciples. And so verse 23, it begins the third mission trip. But notice that Paul, excuse me, that Luke says, after spending some time there. I don't know about you, but I know about me. But I, I read something like that, and I'm very quick to think, well, Paul got home, he washed his socks, he, he packed a bag, and he went on the next trip. That's not necessarily what happened. Okay? Luke says, after spending some time. So we don't, is that a week? Is that a month? Is that six months? I, I don't know. But for me, at least, I'm always trying to put a timeline on everything, and we can't necessarily do that here. And I think we also need to recognize that, that Luke is the master of the understatement. And I think he has to be, because Luke is recording everything that happened in the first century church, how God was building his, his church in the first century. And Luke doesn't have a hard drive to capture this on. He doesn't have a cloud to type it all in, and then that's where it could be stored. He's writing this on scrolls. 
And so if Luke was to write down every single thing that happened, it would, it would fill up all the libraries of the, of the world. And so I think there's times when Luke has to be like Joe Friday. You know, just the facts, ma'am. And that's what he's capturing for us. And so the, the third missionary journey is covered in Acts 18, 19, 20, and 21. Was during the, the, one of those trips, he went to the city of Corinth, and he spends 18 months there, a year and a half. And... That's up until that point, that's where Paul spent the majority of his time. And he spends a lot of time there because the people in Corinth had some pretty bad theology. There's the worship of Aphrodite and everything that, that comes with that false goddess. But then when he gets to Ephesus, he spends twice as long. Three years. Okay, after all, those people, they're worshiping Artemis and everything that comes with worshiping that false goddess. Goddess, And so the lion's share of all the mission work that Paul did was spent in Ephesus. Well, if we back up again and go to Acts chapter 18, we're introduced by, to a man by the name of Apollos from Alexander. Alexandria. Excuse me. He's, he's a brilliant mind, and he's steeped in his Old Testament. But he doesn't have a complete picture of the Messiah and what he would do on the cross and how Jesus would rise from the grave. So there's two Christians by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. They're a husband and wife team. They, they see him preaching. They're like, man, that guy's good. If only his theology was a little better. So they pull him aside and they teach him the way of, of Christ more accurately. But earlier than that, Paul had invested into those two, into Aquila and Priscilla. And so now there is a trickle-down of investment of the gospel. And so what happened was Paul poured into them, and now they're pouring into someone else so that the gospel will go out. And that's true for them, and I just want to say that is true for us as well. That if someone is invested in you, you're now obligated to go and invest in someone else. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme, but this is the only pyramid scheme in the history of time that was legit. Okay, we need to know that, that Christianity is not a consumer religion, okay? And that's, that's what so many Christians think. They think, well, I come to a place like this on Sunday, I, I hear some worship, I, I hear, some, hear a message, or maybe I even go to a small group and I hear there again, and then I go home and I wait for next Sunday and I do it all again. That's consumerism, okay? But Christianity is where someone is poured into me. And then I will do the same. I will go and pour into somebody else until they're able to go and do, do, do it again. And so Christianity is about the multiplication of the gospel. Where more people go out and more people hear all about what Jesus has done. In the end of ends, the name of Jesus is lifted on high. Well, in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to the synagogue and he teaches there until basically he doesn't want to be heard from any longer. I think what was going on, Paul was stepping on some toes with his preaching. And, and so then he goes to the hall of Tyrannus, is what, what Luke records for us. And it's from there that he preaches for two years. And it's from the hall of Tyrannus that basically all of Asia hears the gospel. So this is what I think is happening there. I think Paul is preaching in this hall. I mean, almost picture like someone has gone to our, our community center and they're, they're preaching there. And he's a great preacher, and he's, he's training up Christians to share the gospel, and then he's sending them out to the city they're in. And then these, these new Christians live their life, and they, they tell people uh, what, what Paul has taught them. They go to their friends, their, their family, their co-workers, their neighbor, and they tell them all that what Paul has taught them until 
someone professes, hey, they're kind of interested. I want to know more, more about this Jesus. And then those people, they say, hey, why don't you come to me to this hall, Tyrannus, and you can hear Paul for themselves. Sounds a lot like what we're doing here at Crosspoint, right? We come here, we, we get trained up on what the Bible says, and we leave this place, and we put into action what we've learned in our relational world. We share the gospel with our friends, our family, our co-workers, our, our neighbors. And if someone's interested, this is what we say. say, hey, why don't you come back? Why don't you come back with me to this place where I go every Sunday? It's a great place for your, your family, too. Your kids can learn about Jesus. And, 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 you, and you do that until they profess Jesus as their Savior. I think that is like God's plans for us to share with everybody within our relational world. You see, I influence you, and then you go out of this place, and you influence somebody else. And then they go and do the same and see the, this process of multiplication. And the end of ends, the name of Jesus is lifted on high. Well, in Acts chapter 20, Paul's getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to leave these, 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 these men that he's invested in for three years. And I think Paul wants to say something so that his leaving, that when he leaves, his, his work won't, won't end with his leaving. Okay? Because think about it. If Paul had come to Ephesus and he preached the gospel and then people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's a great thing. I mean, the kingdom of God has grown through what the apostle Paul has done in Ephesus for three years. But at the same time, it'd be a tragedy if it just ended when he left, right? So this is what Paul wants to happen. I think God wants this to happen too. That more people will continue to turn to faith in Christ after he leaves. And so Paul leaves the church in, with these words that we read in Acts chapter 20. And so by extension, he's leaving these words to us as well, right? Read with me in Acts 20 verse 18. It says, And when they came to him, when, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of the repentance towards God and of faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the city of Ephesus, it was very strategic. And I think this is one reason why Paul stays here so long. It's because it's very strategic for the gospel for, because of its commerce, because of its culture, uh, its economics. That, that the, this is a place where so many people could hear the, the gospel. And Paul was so good at preaching the gospel that a riot broke out. And he had to get out of town while getting was good. Well, he went through Macedonia, and he circles back to Asia, and he comes to Miletus, okay? And that's where we're at here. And Paul, he sends a message to the pastors in, in Ephesus. He says, hey, I want you to come over here, and I want you to travel the 30 miles so you can meet with me. Paul is kind of, in a sense, having the very first pastor's conference right here in Acts chapter 20. If you, I don't know if you know this, but there are conferences that pastors can go to and they can hear from other pastors about what the best practices are for pastors to, to have to build them up. Well, that's what, pa what Paul is doing. He's delivering a, a pastor's message here. 
Paul is kind of a pastor to pastors. He's kind of a shepherd to those that are shepherding the, the believers. And Paul wants to give them a final word. And I have to think he's very emotional. I think when we just read that, we're not doing justice to the tears that are probably flowing off of Paul's face. He's invested in these men for three years. You see, these are the men that are going to take the baton of faith and are going to carry on his work after he leaves. And this is the principle that Paul kind of, in a sense, has a front row flock, if you will. That there are certain men that, that Paul is pouring into, so then they will go and do the same. That there's leaders within the church that are going to take the charge of growing the kingdom of God seriously. And so these are the people that Paul is pouring into. And, and so this happens for us too. That there's people in our lives that we need to pour our lives into so that the kingdom of God grows. And in verse 18 he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the, from the first day I set foot in Asia. You see, Paul didn't do what he did for himself. Paul didn't become a pastor, a church planter, so he can have an easy life. And if that's what some people think that pastors do, or if that's why they go into that line of work, they really should look, consider a new line of work. But Paul had pure, pure motives. His motives were invest in people's lives and help them have a ministry that points, to, points other people to Jesus. You see, Paul, the people that knew Paul in Ephesus, they, they knew him because his life was an open book. Paul had no hidden agenda. Paul didn't need to give a defense for the way he, he lived his life and what he was doing because his life was on display for everyone to see. You see, when you live your life like that, your, your impact for the kingdom of God is huge because those people that are your front row flock, those that you're pouring your life into, they know who you are. And so those, your front row flock, they, they know how you live your life and what you do and one, what you don't do, whether they be believers or unbelievers, they know you. They know you're not faking it. And there's so many times that the, the so-called Christians, they're just kind of going through the hoops and they're faking their life. You see, when you live your life like an open book, like Paul's doing, it's a life that it really forces you to honor God. Because our faithful life, it gives us credibility, again, with believers and unbelievers both. And that gospel that's being lived out in our life, it, it's so powerful that the people can see. And, and they, they need to see that, that we are actually living that life out. Read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know why the gospel is so powerful? The gospel is powerful because it can take someone who is spiritually dead and make them alive. What else can do that? There's absolutely nothing else in the world that can do that. Only the gospel can, that can be poured into somebody and take somebody who is destined for eternity and hell and make them fit for heaven. That the Spirit of God can come into someone's life and impart this new life in this person. So the question is, what else can do that? Nothing else can do that. And because of that, the gospel is not only the most powerful thing, but it's also the most important thing too. And so we need to live our lives, if you're a believer, like an open book, so that people can see that you're not faking it, that you're the real deal, and that your motives are pure. I heard a story of a man that, that saw an, an ad for a, for a car for sale. Turns out this was a, was a Porsche, and it was, the car was only a year old, and the ad said the car was on sale for $20. And 
The guy said, man, $20, that's got to be a typo. But for one reason or another, he, he called. He wanted to investigate the, this ad and see what the deal with the car was. And so he called the number, and this lady answered the phone. And so he's talking to this lady about the car. And well, it turns out that the car belonged to her adulterous husband. She had, she had left him and ran off another woman. And he called her and said, hey, sell my car and send me all the money. And so she did. 20 bucks. My point is, motives are everything, right? Well, Paul had pure motives. And he appeals to these men to continue the, the, the faith because his motives are pure. He's essentially saying, listen, you know me. You know my life. You know my motives are pure. And I want nothing more than what God wants. That's what Paul is saying. So, so the question that I'm going to get to, because our life needs to be pure for serving the Lord, Right? So the question is, how do we know if our motives are pure? How do we know? Well, God has instilled this, this device into all of our hearts, and the Bible calls it our conscience. Okay? God gives us a conscience to bring us into conviction so that we will examine our, our lives, whether or not our motives are pure. Read in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires, they are law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. And while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day it is written, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You see, everybody has a conscience. Whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, everybody has a conscience. And our conscience, it judges our thoughts and our actions, our our deeds, in light of whatever we hold to be the highest source of authority, right? Okay? The English word conscience, it means to know together. In the Greek word, it means co-knowledge. And so, as a follower of Jesus Christ, okay, my thoughts... My actions, my conscience kind of convicts me of whether or not Jesus would think what I'm doing is right or wrong. Okay? So here's a question. I'm, I've got this up on, on, the, on, the, on the screen for us. The question is, let's read it together. Do you believe that Jesus has all authority? And I want you to really wrestle with that. Do you believe that Jesus has all authority? Because the night before Jesus was arrested, Jesus said... I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And some of Jesus' last words before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So check this out. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I am the source of all truth. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I have the, thors, the highest authority. So this is what we should do. Don't play empty lip service and say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but yet our life would say otherwise. If you really are a a Christian and you're not living the Christian life, your conscience should be pulling your heart out of your chest and punting it down the road if you're saying one thing and doing another. Here's another deal. I'm just being honest. I don't know whether you're doing it or not. Whether you're living the life or not, that's between you and God. I'm just asking you to consider your life. But in your eyes, if Jesus doesn't have the highest authority, then what does? What does? Is it your feelings? Is it your opinions? 
Because all the time people say, well, I feel this to be true. No, that's an opinion. Or people say, well, my truth says, no, no, that's an opinion too. Only God has a monopoly on all truth. Everything else is just an opinion. How about, how about this question? Next question. Do you believe that Jesus has all authority? Do you believe? Do you believe that he has authority? And then if that's true, then the question is, well, what determines truth for you? Because I believe that the word of God, the Bible, is the inspired word of God. Now, we, we say in, 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 in preaching terms, that, that in theological terms, that the Bible is God-breathed. Okay, that God inspired the men to write what they wrote when they penned their Bibles. And he did it in a way, he didn't affect their personalities. You can see these men's personality come through their writing. And so, the Bible is the source of truth if you're a Christian. That the word of God is absolutely final. And so, if you believe something that contradicts the Bible, here's what you should do. Change your mind. Okay? He's right. You're wrong. Period. That's it. But today, we live in a postmodern culture. Okay, postmodernism, this is what comes after modernism. Modern, in modernism, it teaches, well, if you're a scientist, you would say, well, well, truth is discovered through the scientific method. And if you're a philosopher, you would say truth is determined through rational thought. Well, theologians say that truth is discovered through the word of God. But here in our postmodern culture, it says something completely different. It says truth is not discovered, truth is created. The truth is personal, the truth is relative, that you determine what truth is. Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, what is true for you may not be true for me, and what's wrong for me may not be wrong for you. Well, to that I would say, well, if you think it's wrong that I steal your wallet, pull your wallet out of the back pocket and take out the money, put it in my wallet and say, have a good day, is that wrong? You would say yes. Well, then you can't live out that worldview. That worldview cannot be lived out that this is a postmodern culture, that there's no right, no wrong, no absolute truth. Because if there is no God, well, that means life is absolutely meaningless. And, and to, say, to say that there's no absolutes, that's an absolute statement. There's absolutely no absolutes. That just doesn't hold water. That doesn't make sense. But that's the world we live in today. There was a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. He's a German philosopher. He's quoted as saying this, quote, When we die, we rot. When the, sun goes out of, when the sun goes out, all of civilization dies forever. Zillions of years from now, no one will know, so it makes no difference how you live your life. Here's what I'll say to that. It's pathetic. What a sad way to, to try to live your life. No God, nothing, nothing matters at all. I mean, how do you answer the basic questions of life? Because I believe that the Christianity answers some of the most basic questions. Questions like, is there God? The answer is yes. How about this? Can, can God be known? The answer is yes. God be known through a personal relationship with his one and only son, Jesus Christ. How about this question? Why am I here? Everybody asks that question, why am I here? In fact, that, that question drove me to salvation. I'm not here by accident. Then why am I here? The answer is, you're here to know God and to, and to love Him. Well, how about this? Is there life beyond the grave? The answer is yes. And everybody will spend one of two places for all eternity, either in, in hell, separated from God, or in heaven, for, for, forever in heaven with, with Him. 
Because if there is no absolutes, no, no right, no wrong, that poses a real problem. Because we all know what's right or wrong. Some of us would just say different things are right or wrong. But so every single one of us, believers and unbelievers, will say this is right and this is wrong. Well, if there's some things that are wrong, that means there's something that's right. If there's some things that are evil, well, that means there's some things that are, are good. And if there is good, well, then there must be a moral standard. And if there's a moral standard, well, then there must be a moral standard giver. That's God. Okay? Truth is discovered through the Word of God. And Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. He is the source of all truth. And I asked the question, I said, do you believe that Jesus has all authority? That's not the real question, though, is it? That's kind of the precursor for the real question. The real question is, do you live as though Jesus has all authority? You know, what Jesus says, it goes for you. When Jesus says give, you give. When Jesus says serve, you serve. When Jesus says or commands, you do your very best to strive and believe it. So here's, here's the next question. question, question three. Do we live out what we say we believe? Do we live out what we say we believe? It's, ne- it's not whether or not we believe it. It's whether or not we live it out, right? Do we live out what we say we believe? And that is the very truest test for a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to kind of sum up the question like this. Your lifestyle. Is it lip service or is it lifestyle? Are Are you just paying the words? Are you really doing it? Because our belief, it affects our behavior. Okay, Those two are interconnected. Those two are interlocked. You cannot have one without the other. If you believe that the goal in life is to, make, to work real hard, make a lot of money, well, then that's exactly what your life will reflect. You'll work yourself to the bone, you'll have a lot of money, then you'll die with a lot of money. If the goal in life is to live vicariously through your kids, then that's what's going to be seen and lived out in your life. If you believe that life is all about a good time, having a good time today, for tomorrow you die, well, then that's what's going to be seen in your life. But if you le- believe that this life is a gift from God, and we have only this life to live it for for God and His kingdom to build it, well, then that's what's going to be seen in your life. Your belief about God and your belief about the Bible and, you know, truth, it will affect, it will determine your life and how you live it. Because beliefs and behaviors, it really determines who you become. So here's, here's the next question. One more question. The question is, what does your behavior reveal about your heart? What does your behavior reveal about your heart? Or does it reveal something totally different? Now again, I'm not giving you the answers. I'm just asking the questions. I'm asking you to ask these questions. Pastor Chuck Swindoll, he he, he was preached on this exact same text that we're in, and, and he looked at Paul's life, and he said, now Paul, there was five pitfalls that Paul was able to avoid that he wanted his life to be poured out like a drink offering. He wanted his life to be on display for God. And so we're going to go through these same five pitfalls together. Here's pitfall number one that we need to avoid as, as believers. Laziness. We have to avoid laziness. Verse 18 says this. You yourselves know that how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Paul says, you know my devotion You know how hard I work. And Paul was devoted to preaching and teaching. He grinded out his life for the gospel. 
Paul discipled those who, who believe, who profess Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I mean, think Paul didn't just leave them to himself. Oh, you profess Jesus? Oh, good day. Go, go, you're done. No. He discipled those. He taught those who professed Christ as Savior. Verse 19, excuse me, chapter 19 of, of Acts tells us he did it for two years. And I think what, 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 when Luke said that, he means two years with no breaks, no vacations. Paul didn't take a day off for two years. 730 days straight without, without a day. Paul's a stud. And it's so easy to buy into this temptation, just coast and drift. This is what I did for Jesus yesterday. Man, I'm good. I'm, I, don't, I don't need to keep going. I, I can take it easy. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. That's what happened to the church of Ephesus. Okay? They just kind of drifted away. Jesus said about the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, 2 that they abandoned their first love. That they left it. And that's not an all-at-once deal. It's not like you just, hey, I'm just going to stop today. No, it's kind of like a boat that gets untied from the dock. It's just a slow drift. And that's what happened to the church in Ephesus until there wasn't a Christian testimony anymore. It all starts with laziness. Here's the second pitfall we need to avoid. Pride. We need to avoid pride. Read verse 19. Paul says, says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Paul was a humble man. And humble, humbleness means uh, lowliness of mind. It's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's, it's thinking, thinking of yourself less. Humility is having the mind of Christ. You see, and I didn't point, that doesn't come naturally to us. Nobody's just naturally humble. We're actually naturally very, very prideful. You know, what if I had a medal and it said most humble? Would it be, would it be prideful for me to wear that? It's a question. I don't know. Maybe you should get me one. I'll, maybe I'll wear it. But anyway, no. When someone, you know, you know, for me, it's very hard to be humble. You know, if someone wrongs, wrongs me, naturally, I want revenge. You know, if I'm in traffic, somebody cuts me off, I naturally want to get behind their rear fender and pit them off the road. That's what I want to do. But humility is learned over time. It's learned as we, we live our life for Jesus. But our culture today, we want our rights. Well, Jesus wants us to lay our rights aside. And Paul wasn't bragging about his life to the Ephesians, Ephesians pastors. He's sharing his life. He's inspiring these pastors to live their life the same way that he lived his life. Paul wasn't a leader, that type of guy that says, hey, do as I say, not as I do. No, Paul was the type of guy that says, hey, live your life like you saw me live my life as I poured it out for the Lord. Here's the third pitfall. Pitfall number three, discouragement. We need to avoid discouragement. Verse 19, Paul says, with the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know, Paul Foster faced a lot of opposition during his three missionary journeys. I mean, a lot. It wasn't little opposition. It was a whole pile of opposition. I mean, think about it. He got beat up. Not just one time. It was a lot of times. He he got stoned. They, they, They thought he was dead. He got criticized. He got lied about. Now, Paul did get discouraged. He did. But he didn't quit. He found a way to keep going no matter what. He kept pursuing Jesus. He kept being faithful to the call. I mean, think about it. Ephesus was a dark, dark city to be a pastor. I can only imagine being, what it would be like to be a pastor in the church of Ephesus. 
And he kept preaching, he kept teaching for years. And it took time for the gospel to penetrate in Ephesus. And Paul gave all of himself. And we need to recognize it's so easy to give up. But Paul didn't give up when he experienced discouragement. He kept going. Fourth pitfall, number four, fear. So easy to fall into that, that pitfall of fear. But Paul says in verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Paul says, I didn't pull any punches. I hit Ephesus with everything and the kitchen sink. That's what he's saying. And Paul said, you know what? I was truthful. Paul said, I was bold. I was very clear about the gospel. I didn't run and hide. And Paul wasn't intimidated by the opposition. Paul stayed the course. That's not easy to do. It's so easy to to allow fear to creep into us and to allow us to go in a different direction rather than what God would have us go. But the Bible says that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. That comes from Satan. Just know when you have that sense of fear, hey, I'm scared. That's not God. God wants us to toe the line. God wants us to, to man our post, stay on that wall, and do the hard things. And he wants us to live our life out boldly for the sake of the gospel. Fifth pitfall, number five, inefficiency. Verse 20, Paul says this. He said, how I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. The Greek word profitable means exactly what you think it means. It means anything that helps, anything that creates an advantage, anything that confers benefits. Paul didn't hold back anything that would help the Ephesian believers grow so what did Paul do? He, pop, he taught them publicly. He taught them privately. He taught them house to house. You see, Paul made the gospel the main thing all the time. The main thing was to sharing what, what Christ has done, how he came and he died for all of mankind. So he was able to preach and teach sound doctrine all the time. In verse 21, he says, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I spoke about it a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again. Salvation is kind of a two-step process. And I think we can clearly see those two steps in that one verse, in verse 21. Salvation comes to those who turn from sin, who repent from sin, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Well, the question is, what is repentance? What exactly is it? Because that's a big churchy word you're not going to hear outside these walls, right? In fact, if you use that word in your everyday conversation, people are going to look at you like your head's on fire. The Bible teaches that there is two types of grief. Read in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. It says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's two types of of grief. There's a godly grief, or if you will, godly sorrow. And there is a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow. One leads to life and one leads to death. Godly grief or repentance, it leads us to salvation without regret. But today there's a really popular movement, just make you feel better, 
Come to church and they're going to make you feel... They leave the repentance part out altogether. So that the goal is to make you feel better. Well, if that's the case, I think I fail miserably. Often today, people will base how they feel about a preacher, about how they feel when they leave. If they leave feeling good, well, that must be a good preacher. If they feel leaving bad, that must be a bad preacher. Well, by that standard, I hope I'm a terrible preacher. Because salvation is two sides of the same coin. And one side's repentance. We can't lose repentance. And so many preachers today, there's no repentance. They're changing the definition of sin. Well, that's no longer sin. You don't need to repent from that. You don't need to turn from that. That's not salvation. You see, the other side of the coin is faith. And some will say, all you need to do is repent. And somebody tells us, all you need to do is to have faith. And that's not true. You need both. We need to have a heart of repentance, which leads us to place faith in something other than ourselves. And what we're supposed to place faith in is Jesus Christ. And then we're saved. I believe great preaching convicts an individual's heart of what's not right in that person's lives in the eyes of God. And then great preacher, preaching tells about a great Savior that came and died for, for sinners. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It, again, two sides of the same coin. It's turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, I said there's godly grief, and that's good. We need godly grief, but there's worldly grief too, and there's a huge difference. One is good, one is not so good. So here's, here's the first thing we need to know. Repentance. Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not remorse. True repentance is not, hey, I'm sorry. Anybody have kids? Oh yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, I'm so sorry, mom. I'm so sorry. No, you're not. You're just sorry you got caught. People who are remorseful, they're, 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 you know, that happens all the time. Where They're sorry for the consequences. It's not that they're sorry they sinned against a holy God. Here's the second type. The second, repentance is, is not regret. People say all the time, I wish I, I made a different life choice. I wish I could just start over. That's just hindsight. Okay? That's wishing things have turned out differently. Here's the third thing. Repentance is not reform. It's not Because people think all the time, I just need to do my best. If you do your best, your best is good enough. No, it's not. Your best is never good enough. Because that's what the cults teach. Just do your best. That's all God's going to ask. But the problem is, none of us give 100%, 100% of the time. None of us. It, It took a bloody cross to atone for your sins and my sins. You were powerless to clean yourself up. We can't clean ourselves up. We need someone to come in, to step in, to do it for us. And the fourth thing, repentance is not religion. Repentance is not religion. Religion is self-effort. Religion is keeping the rules, avoiding taboos, performing certain rituals. Earn God's love. Oh, if I could only work a little harder, God will love me. But that's that's not repentance. Not true repentance. Christianity is God coming for us. You know, this most famous verse in, in all the New Testament, John 3.16, I think we all know it. But I want to read to you John 3.13. Just before those famous words, Jesus says this. Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
You see, religion is of epidemic proportion in this world, in this country, and really in our own town. You can see it everywhere. And religion teaches you perform, you do, do all that you can do to get to God. And Jesus says, no, you'll never get there. Religion teaches us, hey, get on there and ascend up that staircase through your prayers, through your hard work, through your being a good boy, being a good girl, then you can get to God. It's a treadmill. You're never going to get there. But Christianity is where Jesus comes for us. Jesus came down that staircase to a little, little manger in the town of Bethlehem. The incarnate God took on human flesh and he came to us. That's what we celebrate Christmas. Knowing the cross was coming the whole way. That he was beaten within an inch of his life and then nailed to a cross and hung there for six hours for the whole world to see. And he gave his life. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Because you're a sinner. That every single one of us have a great sin debt that we are unable to pay. Jesus came and paid it all. And then he was placed in a tomb and he came back from the dead to prove what he had said that he's true. That if you place faith, if you repent from your sin and turn to him in faith, give your life to him. He will save you. And for most, it comes through a, through a prayer. Through, a, through acknowledgement, a moment of spiritual clarity where you say, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I'll never be good enough. That's why God came who is perfect to die for imperfection. So for most of us, it's a prayer, something along the lines of, dear God, I'm a sinner, and there's nothing good in me, but yet you died in my place. I give my life to you, and I pray this in the precious holy name of Jesus Christ, amen.